Welcome to It Is What It Is. I'm Corbin. And I'm Anthony. Last week we talked about how uh, narrative plays such an important role in our lives as humans. Um, and today we thought it'd be really interesting to to kind of zoom in on this concept of narrative. And instead of focusing on the team approach, you know, what are good storylines for the playoffs, we wanted to focus on individual narratives, which, spoiler alert, has a lot of threads. <laughs> yeah, we're obviously not going to be able to pull all of those threads, but let's see if we can tickle the twine a little bit. Oh, uh, no. So... <laughs> not Kevin Harlan. <laughs> I wanted to bring in uh, a discussion of Paul Ricoeur, who's uh, a philosopher of hermeneutics, uh, known for a lot of different threads and, and topics. But he wrote a couple of volumes called Time and Narrative, which I actually am not familiar with. I'm going to be using one of his uh, other volumes called Oneself as Another. But here he explores the concept of personal identity and agency. And the question is, uh, the larger question he's exploring is, what does it mean to be an agent and to make decisions? Which ties back into our discussion a little while ago about decision-making being so important for uh, a really great player. But on the way to exploring agency, we have to kind of understand what it means to be an individual and who we are. So for Ricoeur, there's these two kinds of identity. There's Edom identity, which is like numerical, like being one thing. And then there's Ipse identity, which is like quality, like what is it that makes you who you are? What's, what is essential about you? Or what is what are your characteristics that kind of persist over time? And we tend to treat those two things as, as singular, but actually time puts pressure on those in different directions. So to consider ourselves qualitatively, well, my, uh, my body changes, my mind changes, my personality changes, my circumstances change. There's nothing qualitatively now that's the same as when I was 14. And so what does it mean for me to be the same person when almost everything about me is different? And numerically then, what is it that we're tracking over time in order to call it one? It seems like there's a whole lot of different things that we could separate out and, and call one. What is it that gives it a numerical unity? What is it that we're, we're tracking? So uh, one thing that he argues is that an agent is its history. But history there has a lot of emphasis on the story part of it. Our history isn't just everything in the world that has occurred prior to this moment, but it's how I'm engaged in those things that have occurred and, and what I take from it. And so narrative plays a big part because we filter out of all of the things that have happened to those things that are relevant to me being who I am. And, and one thing that Record points out is that a narrative is in between a description and a prescription. And what he means by that is we're not just listing all of the facts about what you as an individual has done up to this moment, but also we're developing kind of normative descriptions and, and expectations. You're the kind of person who's honest and therefore will act truthfully in the future. Uh, so that's predictive. And prescriptive is uh, your kind of values will will tell you, dictate how you're going to act in certain circumstances. So a narrative isn't just a descriptive story. It's not a fairy tale. It actually gives us some guidance and perspective on how to be who you are as well. I like what you said about prescriptive and descriptive, uh, because like it reminded me in my line of work in science communication, one of the hardest things that scientists have to get over is this idea that they have to tell all the facts. 
while it's important to convey truth and reality, at the same time, not all of those facts are relevant to the to the needs of who you're talking to, your audience, the needs of your audience. When you'd set up like, you know, in a narrative structure, you're trying to identify the norms, you kind of have to maintain that narrative structure because otherwise you're just muddying the story with other information that doesn't convey the the important part of the story. In reality, what you're trying to do is reconstruct your understanding of it. And the reason why I say that part is because while you were talking about narrative and who you are at different points of time, a large part of your personality is what you've learned and what you understand at each point in time. And so like naturally you're going to learn more. And so of course you're a different person later because now you have more information than you did before. And that information affects who you are and how you operate in the world. Um, and so from an individual narrative perspective, it's not really like you're telling one story about one person. You can kind of look at it as like there's many stories about many people who have the same identity. One of the biggest criticisms leveled at narrative identity theorists is that, well, if we're just the story that we tell ourselves, tell <coughs> any story I want to tell, and that's who I am. So I can do some heinous acts and then tell a redemption story, and all of a sudden I'm now uh, a good person, and that you can't judge me for that. That was an, a different version of me. I'm, no, I'm not that person anymore. And so it's hard to hold anybody accountable for their actions. And it's also, it seems arbitrary. We never know what we're going to expect to get because a person can change their identity at any moment. But Ricoeur pushes back against this kind of simplistic notion of narrative as self-telling by pointing out that our narratives aren't completely under our control. It's not just the stories that we tell ourselves and that we understand about our world. It's also the stories that are told about us and to us. So, you know, as a child, I'm informed by my parents what traits they think I excel at or what areas I need to improve in. And those become self-conceptions. I, I think, you know, I'm good at math or I'm uh, bad at sports and, and that affects the decisions I make. Uh, we hear, you know, judgments about public figures and suddenly the line between their celebrity persona and their personality seems to blur. We, we also have to recognize that nobody's in full control of their own narrative. Nobody can define for themselves and reject that other narrative, but they don't, also don't have to fully accept and embrace it either. It's kind of a back and forth. So I do have some say if, if people try to cast me in a certain light, I can respond to that and try to, to live out a different narrative, show them that that narrative is false. Um, similarly, if, if I try to cast myself in a certain light, others can point out episodes from my past that, that take away from that narrative and, and maybe put it into question and, and make it more complex. Uh, so I think this is going to fit into our discussion about basketball players and, and their public personas. What's interesting about this is that when you say things, right, you're kind of constructing your own narrative about yourself. You know, I, Anthony, am doing this It Is What It Is podcast. So now the words that are coming out of my mouth are like, an, uh, a tangible narrative that I'm creating. But typically, if I want to prove that there's more to my narrative than just what I'm saying, I have to do things. 
And somebody else has to basically tell that narrative for me. Like, I can't say, you know, I also do this. Nobody's really going to believe that. But some, if somebody else, you, for instance, say, you know, you're more than just this podcast. I've seen you, you know, work for nonprofits. So you, there's a charitable side to you. That's like the only way that that other aspect of my narrative becomes, you know, part of the fabric of reality. Mm. And I think that part plays into this conversation about basketball um, because, you know, back before social media, players were essentially just the sum of what they did on court. Mm. And you didn't really understand or know what they did off the court unless it was like a news story or whatever. But those were so few and far between because all that action focused on the on court stuff. But now, yeah. you know, players can say stuff on social media. The news cycle is basically 24-7. So you get a more complete picture of that. I would argue that stuff like the Me Too movement wouldn't be possible in a prior time. You probably were able to much easier to control your own narrative. And so you could basically hide the things that the public would disapprove of. And only promote the things that, you know, would gain you fame and notoriety. Where now there's like people who are trying to find the cracks in the armor. And I think it actually makes us all act a little bit more honestly. No, I think that's really important. Uh, what transparency has done to affect our own self-conceptions and the way that we relate to one another. Uh, so we did talk about some examples of how players in the social media age have responded to fan narratives about them. And uh, I don't know which one you want to talk about first. So we've got two examples, Kevin Durant and LeBron James. We're going to look at the decision, right? LeBron James's decision and then his decision two, I guess is what it's being called. Um, so him moving from Cleveland to Miami and then him moving back to Cleveland. And we're going to chop history off there and nobody's going to remember that he played for the Lakers anyway. And Kevin Durant moving from uh, the Thunder to the Warriors. And uh, probably we could probably fit in him moving back to Brooklyn, him moving to Brooklyn, not back to Brooklyn. Yeah. So let's go chronologically then. Let's start with LeBron James. So, you know, we have 2010. I was in Ohio and uh, we heard this horrendous news that LeBron James was taking his talents to South Beach. And uh, it was completely devastating to the entire state of Ohio. <laughs> and um, to New York. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I wanted to still be a fan of LeBron because I loved his diversity and talent. I, I love a player who is, a, is an incredible scorer but is willing to involve teammates. And his passing ability has always attracted my attention probably disproportionately. And even though he's a superstar – I think I've liked him more than other superstars precisely because he's such a willing passer. So I followed him, unlike many of my Ohio uh, compatriots, I, I followed him to uh, Miami and, and cheered him on through that time period. And there was a huge public black backlash. I mean, he was a villain, not just in Ohio. A lot of places thought of him as an opportunist, as someone who was taking the easy way out. You know, Jordan stayed with the team that he was drafted with, and, and here's LeBron going, leaving Cleveland instead of bringing them a championship, going to play with some other superstars so that he can get some easy rings. That's kind of the narrative that was being written about LeBron. And uh, I even heard Dwayne Wade in an interview this week 
talking about how a lot of racist overtones when they were out in public, things that were said to, to him and LeBron that were very, um, you know, like put, put them back in their place on the plantation and, and just really nasty comments. Uh, so the narrative exploded that he was, you know, maybe not as strong a superstar as he was supposed to be. He's no Michael Jordan. Uh, and then how he's been able to rehabilitate his his reputation. What's interesting to me is that um, the narrative was singular in perspective, but it was multifaceted in message. And by that, I mean, like, you know, after he went to the heat, everybody hated him, except for people in Miami. But they all hated him for different reasons. The people from Ohio and the national media were saying those things that you just said, that he, uh, you know, was taking the easy way out, that he couldn't do it without his friends, blah, blah, blah. Um, the people who wanted him to join their teams, uh, I'm talking about the Bulls and the Knicks specifically, those teams were also trying to form super teams of their own. And so that message that was coming out of Ohio in the national media would have been the same no matter which team he joined. But, you know, if he had gone to Chicago uh, or New York, the the message that was coming out would have been a little different. It would have been something along the lines of like, yeah, he's taking the easy way out, but he's trying to build something for himself. Uh, whereas, you know, because Dwayne Wade was already with the Heat and probably because Bosch had announced that he was going to Miami just a few days before LeBron did, um, it made it seem like he was joining those guys, even though one of those, one or two of those guys were going to have to join him in any of those other places anyway. But the most interesting thing to me was that LeBron never really said anything about himself during this time. He did, you know, he made, he, uh, he kind of explained his rationale while making the decision and then he explained certain facets of it you know throughout his years with the heat but he didn't really ever make a bigger deal than it was being made in the media he wasn't like spending all his time focusing on this narrative i think he understood that his accomplishments and his actions would speak for themselves after the fact which is you know i'm just putting this together right now but that's exactly what i said like five minutes ago but uh, they had some, some battles along the way. And LeBron could have continued trying to win there, but decided to go back to Ohio and see if he could get a championship for the team that drafted him for, for his hometown, basically. And I think that rehabilitated his image for Ohio, for sure. And, and maybe others across the country, because when he did, when they did finally win a ring, it was the, it broke the Cleveland curse. And so it looked like an act of charity for LeBron to leave a comfortable situation in Miami go back and, and work with kind of a rising superstar in Kyrie Irving. And I think that helped re rehabilitate his image. So when he did leave for Los Angeles, the mood in Ohio was much different. They were like, no, he did right by us. He, he came back and gave us what we needed. And now, you know, we wish him all the best. So a very different narrative as he goes on to this next stage of his career. There's two specific examples that I can think of during that comeback story. One is it's a redemption story, right? And everybody loves a redemption story. Two, when he announced it for the decision two, um, the story that he published was called I'm Coming Home, which mm. like he's already right there def like reestablishing the narrative in his favor. And it's kind of hard to, to be mad at somebody 
for making that decision. Now, of course, the people in Miami were mad, but who gives a crap about the people in Miami? They're all soul suckers anyway for living there. Speaking but, of soul suckers, should we go on to Kevin Durant? I'm yeah, sure. let's talk about Kevin Durant because, uh, you know, as I'm saying, LeBron is like he is very carefully controlling the narrative. And Kevin Durant, I would say, is very chaotically controlling the narrative. <laughs> so let's talk about it. He's, he's a young rising superstar, gets uh, drafted by the Sonics number two when everybody kind of wondered if he should have gone number one and, and what kind of talent he was going to be. He immediately demonstrated he was the superstar that, that was possible, you know, that was perceived as possible. And hit, hitting a growth spurt as well, all of a sudden we have one of the best shooters in the history of the NBA playing on a young team. They moved to Oklahoma City, pick up another couple of pieces in Westbrook, Ibaka, Harden. It looks like this young core is going to be an unstoppable juggernaut, and Kevin Durant is the silent killer. Like, he's not mouthy. He, he seems um, kind. He's, he's known for his charity. He's, he's basically seen as an all-around upright guy who – is a superstar with no ego. Like he, he, even Russell Westbrook is kind of given this the spotlight, and Durant seems okay with that, which um, gives him a very favorable reputation initially, and then that all goes downhill. After the decision, everybody said Kevin Durant is the model superstar because he he for all the reasons that you just said. So we're here at Kevin Durant's decision, which for some reason doesn't even have a name, even though it's one of the biggest moves in the NBA in the past 10 years. Um, <laughs> so that already kind of establishes this idea that, you know, the narrative is constructed. Um, so he goes to the Golden State Warriors, and there was kind of rumors that he would do that beforehand, uh, but a lot of people saw that it was it came out of nowhere. Um, and he, up to this point, was pretty quiet, but it was that last year in Oklahoma where there was like, you know, he was starting to make noise, probably inadvertently. The the fake Twitter account thing happened. I'm pretty sure it was that last year. I got the impression that, you know, Westbrook and him, there were definitely tensions between those two. And because Kevin Durant didn't say anything about that stuff, he kind of let Westbrook tell the narrative about him. And maybe the fake Twitter account thing was a response to that, him trying to control the narrative without being at the center of the narrative. He goes to Golden State and he has this, you know, they have this carefree attitude there, but he's becoming a bigger mouthpiece and essentially creating his own drama, which culminates in that very final year last year with the Warriors. And instead of just like shutting the rumors down at the beginning of the season, like, when LeBron made the decision, he said at the beginning of the year, I'm not going to talk about free agency. This is about this team right now for the rest of the year. We're not going to talk about free agency until free agency. And Durant never said anything to that effect. And I guess in that action, right, he's cre allowing this narrative to be created, but he's also playing into that narrative. Even though there was no name for the decision, the, the thing, the term that kind of stuck out in the media was weak. Stephen A. Smith kept calling it a weak move, and I think that got repeated over and over and over again. And it has to rub Kevin Durant raw. You know, he's he's making decisions on a bunch of factors. One of it was he thought it would be fun to play in Golden State, where it was no longer fun in Oklahoma City. He could win championships. But also, um, he was kind of promised that he was going to be the guy and that was unclear in Oklahoma City. It seemed like Westbrook was 
at most willing to co-chair that, uh, not willing to, to acknowledge Durant's supremacy. And so there's some things that make me sympathetic to his decision, but it was the way that he responded to the negative reports, right? So he got, you know, hassled after, after making that decision, he got hassled all through the summer, all through the uh, preseason training and, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But the first thing we hear when the season starts up is him backlash, you know, his backlash against reporters. He's, he's sick and tired of it. He's like, are we talking about this again? There's no beef. What are you talking about? And he's got a really prickly attitude and, and just really sullen. And he starts to become more vocal, something he was never in Oklahoma City. He was always a very quiet player. And all of a sudden he's making the news all the time and it's always negative. And that for me is what soured me, not, not the actual decision itself, but that the criticism was enough to get under his skin that all of a sudden his personality seemed to, to change, or at least his public persona was much more uh, protective. He wanted to be seen as the good guy and really couldn't handle any kind of criticism. I think that right there gets at it, right? When you're going through life, um, to, to yourself, you're obviously the protagonist of your own narrative. Um, and he cared so much, and maybe LeBron does too, uh, but I, you don't get that sense. So maybe Durant cared so much about him being perceived as the good guy that he seemingly went out of his way to get other people to see it that way. And like every Marvel story that comes out, everybody who does that ends up being the villain, right? They're the ones who are like, I got to control the narrative about this. I'm going to make the world see things the way I see them. And that right there makes you the villain. <laughs> There's a good Spider-Man Far From Home uh, pitch if I've ever heard one. <laughs> There's a couple of examples there of how other narrative and self-narrative are intertwined. And so our picture of Kevin Durant and his picture of who he is is not uh, something that's fully in his control and it's not fully dictated by society. And I just want everybody to keep in mind at your funeral, the narrative that you've constructed is not the one that's going to be told. You know, my stepmom died almost exactly a year ago. And, you know, at her funeral, people are telling these stories of her that one, either I had never heard before, or two, were perceptions that I didn't either see or I didn't have that perception of within myself. And so there's all these compete, not necessarily competing narratives, but you realize that a person is more than than what they're they're telling about themselves or what one person sees about them. And so um you know, no matter how much you fight uh, for whatever narrative that you're trying to construct about yourself, those stories won't be told later. And you just have to accept it, right? It is what it is.